On this edition of Kiwi Tripsters, we celebrate the long golden summer. We head south to central Otago to explore the booming fruit bowl of Cromwell, the wondrous wine and gold rush relics of Bannockburn. Plus, we're joined by travel industry leader Sajata Rahman from Abercrombie and Kent, and we escape to the pristine bush and water world of Abel Tasman National Park. Welcome back to Kiwi Tripsters. Buckle up and take off to spectacular destinations as we continue our journey and share the inside word on all things travel. Whether it's luxury travel or backpacking on a budget, whether it's cruising or foodie trips, we've got you covered with top tips and tricks so you can have an amazing travel experience. And now, over to your hosts, Mike Yardley and Chris Lynch. Welcome aboard Kiwi Tripsters, I'm Mike Yardley. And I'm Chris Lynch, it is great to be back with you for 2021, Happy New Year, hope you had a fabulous summer break and got some sort of sun on you. Did you have a good one Chris? I had an absolutely fantastic break, thank you Mike, I managed to go to all sorts of wonderful places including of course the Abel Tasman National Park and we'll discuss that later on the programme. Indeed. Well, most people have been raving about how the weather has been fabulous for our summer so far, uh, touch wood, but... Um, some of the places we're going to focus on in this edition are generally other places around New Zealand where summer seems to go extra long, uh, like an Indian summer, all the way to Easter. And we like that. So let's start in Cromwell, the fruit bowl of central Otago. Cromwell is on the roll, isn't it, Mike? It's doing pretty well now. It has got an absolute spring in its step, Chris, and... Um, Obviously, for starters, you've got all of that succulent summer fruit waiting for you on mm -hmm. the streets of Cromwell. So head on down there and the roadside stalls are out in force, whether it's cherries or berries or stone fruit, not to mention their outstanding vineyards. And if you happen to be in Cromwell on a Sunday, you've got to head down to the old Heritage Precinct where Cromwell stages its spectacular farmer's market. Now, this is such a good market. Annabelle Langbein will often say she thinks it's New Zealand's best because the produce is just so diverse, so fresh, and obviously with all of that stone fruit, it's so succulent. Um, and I think what really is the winning uh, formula behind Cromwell's growing success is that they've got a lot of local attractions in town and also, they are such a stone's throw away from so much cool stuff. You know, whether you want to head to Wanaka for the day yeah. or Queenstown for the day, there is so much uh, in close proximity to Cromwell. And just about some of those uh, those farms that you see, you may be travelling to uh, Queenstown, make the effort, stop off when it says fresh fruit here yeah. because you will not get a better tasting nectarine or apricot Year than you would say at the supermarket. It is it. justified. I think it's mm. just because it hasn't been in that sort of that entire long process of heading to yeah. the supermarket. So it is absolutely pure, isn't it? That's right. It's ha it hasn't been in the freezer. So yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah it yeah. is au natural fresh. You also checked out some of the wine destinations too. We could talk about wine and central Otago for weeks, Chris, but um, uh, we are going to talk about Bannockburn on a on a later segment uh, in this edition. But for starters in Cromwell, um, it's sort of like its own distinct sub-region of central Otago wine. Bannockburn is like another distinct sub-region. But in Cromwell, <clears throat> if you rock into the main part of town where that fruit sculpture is on the highway, <clears throat> if you look across the road, there are vineyards just waiting for you to uh, explore right across the road. River Rock Estate Vineyard is Hyper Boutique 
excellent Pinot from River Rock Estate. And the other one which I really love in Cromwell is Wooing Tree Vineyard. Um, now this vineyard takes its name from Cromwell's beloved landmark tree, which they call the Wooing Tree, and you see it right in the middle of the vineyard. The backstory to this tree is so cool, and anyone who lives in Cromwell will testify to this. Over the years, <clears throat> it has been historically the place that Cromwell locals have gone to canoodle. So, you know, you're a young, you're a young thing and you're all loved up with your with your partner. You often head to the woo, the wooing tree over the years. Um often to pop the question. And some people will actually get married in Cromwell underneath the wooing tree. So I think it's such a cool wee story, um, which is very much embedded in Cromwell's um, history. And also Cloudy Bay Shed is another really great vineyard to head to in the Cromwell area. This is the sister of the Marlborough uh, mothership, Cloudy Bay. It's like its little southern satellite. They've got this amazing hillside setting. It's very glam um, and it's kitted out with Jack's Raw Bar. So you can order up some freshly shucked oysters to go with your wine tastings. Sounds very nice. Now, uh, before you go tasting some wines, you might as well get on the bike because you, you're into this at the moment and you've done a bit of this uh, in that area, right? I have indeed. People are absolutely buzzing about the new cycle trail. This is the Lake Dunstan Cycling and Walking Trail, which links Cromwell with Clyde. And most of it is now good to go. The final section of the track uh, heading to Clyde is being completed as we speak. It should be fully completed uh, by March. But what makes this trail so extraordinary is the engineering. There are some parts to the trail that are like clip-on lanes cleaved out of the cliff face. So if you picture Lake Dunstan, as you head towards Clyde, you'll uh, probably be able to conjure in your mind those huge mountainscapes that back onto the lake. The, the, the cycle and walking trail in some sections has been cleaved out of that cliff face. So as you bike along the trail, you are leering over Dunstan's turquoise water. It's a thrill ride. And the other really cool thing is they have connected the cycling trail to thread through lots of vineyards. So it's a very handy way to hopscotch your way around the vines for a bit of wine tasting. No drink driving required. And there's plenty of bike uh, rental bikes and e-bikes at your disposal there. And then there's the Highlands. Yes, if you want to get your vroom vroom on, uh, Highlands Motorsports Park is wildly popular. I didn't have time to take a spin around the racetrack, but you can. Um, and some of the, the cars you can take a spin in, like, you know, Ferraris and so forth, they can be pretty pricey, even just for a spin. But the other really cool thing aside from the racetrack is the museum at Highlands. They have got so much cool stuff inside this museum. For example, a $4 million Aston Martin Vulcan, which is believed to be the most expensive car ever purchased in New Zealand. A $4 million car. Um, and lots of um, merch and memorabilia from people like Michael Schumacher. His uh, Benetton uh, Formula One car is there at Highlands. Very, very good. Now, I want to get back to the fruit because yes. this, is, this is the main thing about Cromwell. Let's be honest about yes. it. Now, for me, uh, I, I stopped up at three uh, farms, went up the driveway. Hello. Very, very nice. What do you reckon? Do you reckon there's a specific place to get the best, freshest, nicest fruit? 
I really like the family-owned vineyards because they are yeah. so well-connected to the whole mm. Cromwell scene. Uh, they've got a good sort of community spirit about them. So the ones that I really like, Jackson Orchards, they are family-owned and operated. Uh, they're on that Cromwell Luggett Road. And they also have their own yellow electric bus and they do orchard tours. So you can take like a 45-minute spin around the orchard um, to learn uh, about, you know, the working orchard. Mm. And it's also, Jackson's is also one of New Zealand's largest apricot exporters. Um, and they also do the most amazing real fruit ice cream at Jackson's. The other ones I really like are Webb's. They are an old timer. I think from recollection, Webb's have been in business since like 1920 in Cromwell, family owned. And um, yeah, there's plenty of others. Jones's family fruit stall is also really popular because they've got such a huge variety of stuff, not just fresh fruits, but dried fruits, nuts and honey and vegetables. And they've got the most beautiful gardens, like an English style garden, which you can take a bit of a stroll around as well. Now, I've seen some of your amazing photos of where you stayed. It actually reminded me of something of a beautiful movie. It was just beautiful. There are lots of different places to stay. Yeah. What do you recommend? Heritage Collection Lake Resort which is at Peace of Moorings. Now, this that is, is lovely, doesn't it? It's, it's so truly, nice. It is sort of like overwater luxury. So if you're missing the likes of Tahiti or Fiji for those overwater bungalows, this is the next best thing in New Zealand because the, it's a boutique hotel and all of the villas have been built as like overwater boathouses. Um, and it's hugging the lake's edge of Lake Dunstan, about 7K north of Cromwell on that Cromwell Luggett Road. So it's called this little subdivision or little satellite settlement, Pisa Moorings. And it is truly beautiful. You've got, you've got just the most amazing views of like the Pisa Range right behind you. You look across the lake out to towards the likes of Bendigo Station. Uh, the cycling and walking trail, the Lake Dun Dunstan Trail, goes through there as well. Um, so, yeah, it really is uh, the most beautiful spot if you want a little bit of luxury. You're with Kiwi Tripsters, Mike Yali and Chris Lynch with you. Thanks so much for being with us again for a new year. Now, Mike, uh, you've had your, your fill of Cromwell, uh, but there's another special place next door, isn't there? Yes, indeed. Bannockburn, they are like bosom buddies, Cromwell and Bannockburn, because the only thing that separates them is just this wee sliver of the Kawaro River as it makes its way into Lake Dunstan. Um, but, yeah, when you've done your dash with Cromwell, Bannockburn is like a banger of a destination in its own right. And once again, it's the wine scene that uh, takes um, central interest. Uh, the Pinot of the Bannockburn subregion, I think, epitomises the very best of central Otago wine. And it's because Bannockburn has its own microclimate, super hot summers. It's like a desert in the summer. They have super low rainfall and obviously come wintertime, bone chilling. So the Pinot Noir is just exceptional. And some of our most decorated wine labels in New Zealand um, are home in Bannockburn, Felton Road, Bannockbray, Akurua, Mount Difficulty, they're all based in Bannockburn. Now tell me, uh, what winery stood out for you? Because this is a very popular part well, of the region for, for wine. It is. I do like wine with a view, Chris. So the, the cellar door and restaurant experiences that really stood out for me are those that have the most magnificent scenery. There's a lot of Instagram show offery, I oh, have to say, there? in Bannockburn. And they're very, very competitive, the vineyards, to ensure that they serve up the most extraordinary scenic 
perspectives on their vineyard. So, you know, in terms of where they construct their restaurant and so forth, has it got a good vantage point on the beautiful scenery? Um, the ones that stood out for me, Mount Difficulty. Uh, absolute dreamy perch over the proceedings of those terraced vineyards and the river and Lake Dunstan and the mountains. And they do such good Pinot Noir at Mount Difficulty. Uh, also, if there was a gold medal to be awarded for best setting, I think Carrick would have to share the honours with Mount Difficulty. Carrick have the most incredible seasonal platters. They are legendary, their platters. People keep talking about their platters. Uh, the setting is very picnicky, overlooking the Bannockburn Inlet. Um, and another really kick-ass stop, if you're getting a bit sick of wine and perhaps you want a beer, go to the Bannockburn Hotel. This is the pub that was the first in central Otago ever to be issued a liquor licence. So it's been in business like since the 1860s, this place. So much history, knockout views across the valley, awesome food, great beer gardens. Uh, it's the sort of place you could spend all day. Now, the gold mining has permanently altered Bannockburn's landscape, hasn't it? Absolutely, quite radically. And obviously, like much of um, central Otago, before the wine rush, there was the gold rush. And uh, the alluvial gold fields were essentially water blasted on a gigantic scale. And it's permanently defaced um, the, the hills around the upper valley of Bannockburn. It is a bit like a miniature version of the Grand Canyon. I tell you <laughs> not, I am not lying. If you go to those upper reaches of Bannockburn, from some perspectives, some vantage points, it is like a Grand, Grand Canyon in shrink version. Big stone ridges, rock stacks, um, stripped of vegetation, and they all sort of tower over the vineyards like fortresses. Really cool. Any other dedicated tracks around? Yes. Um, the Bannockburn Sluicings Track uh, starts off from Felton Road, and this is a really good way to get up and have a look at um, the remnants of the goldfield and those sluicing operations. Sluicings is basically hydraulically blasting um, the landscape um, to try and wash the gold out. Um, so you get a really good sense of that history on that sluicings track. The other option is if you drive on Bannockburn Road up higher up the valley, turn off at Hall Road, and that will take you down to the remains of a gold mining township called Stewart Town. So this is right at the top of Bannockburn. And Stewart Town, which is now a ghost town, um, was where the dam wall was created, which controlled all the water back in the 1860s for the sluicing operations. You can still see the dam wall there. They've got this gorgeous old stone cottage from the 1860s, lots of other gold mining relics, and you also get some really good intimate encounters with that scarred Grand Canyon-style landscape. This is sounding good. Any other final tips, Mike? Just quickly, if you're in for a bit of overland adventuring, I haven't done this, but it is on my to-do list. From Bannockburn, did you know you can actually drive around the back of the Remarkables and end out uh, at the south end of Lake Wakatupu by Garston. Now, this road, it is a very hairy road. It's called the Nevis, and it was actually the old coach road to Invercargill. It's not for the faint-hearted, so it is strictly suited for four-wheel drives only. And you will, from what I hear, feel as if you are on top of the world because the Nevis is the highest public road in New Zealand. You will be 1,173 metres above sea level 
Edit Summit, which is amazing. Um, but if you're in for a, a bit of an adventure, definitely put the Nevis on your list. Very good. You've really sold this one to me, Mike. I'm gonna, I feel like I need to, I've missed out. Anyway, coming up, Mike talks to the regional boss of Abercrombie and Kent. Uh, how is the travel trade feeling in the new year? Plus, I'll tell you about my adventures in the Abel Tasman National Park. Stay with us. You're with Kiwi Tripsters. I'm Mike Yardley, and joining us is Abercrombie and Kent's Regional Managing Director, Sujata Raman. Happy New Year to you, Sujata. Happy New Year, Mike. How are you? Very good, thank you, and uh, very thankful to be in 2021. And I guess that's where we should begin with a look back to uh, the past year's travels and how they were so ravaged by the impact of COVID. Are you heading into this new year? feeling like 2021 is going to be a recovery year? Uh, Mike, I I think it's certainly going to be uh, a better year. So I think we would all be approaching the year with a sense of optimism. Um, I I don't think it's going to be a magic bullet. Um, You know, I I, I just, uh, I think this is, we've been through a really uh, incredibly difficult and draining time over the last uh, few months for everyone in, in whatever way or whatever industry you worked in. Um, And and I don't think you can turn a tap on and off just like that. So um, I think that people are going to approach this year uh, with a sense of optimism, with a sense of thinking about uh, travel, which they probably weren't at all last year. Um, So so I think that'll be the the upside for companies like ours, where we we will be starting to talk travel again and, uh, and talk specifics. But uh, we're certainly not going to be at pre-COVID levels, even if um, you know New Zealand and Australia both were to open their borders, which I'm not sure is magically going to happen either. Sure. I'll have a look at some of the challenges uh, with you in a moment, but just for the sake of our audience, for those who aren't overly familiar with Abercrombie and Kent, give us an insight into the depth and the variety of your product and experiences. Yeah, sure. Well, um, Amcrom in Kent was set up um, over 50 years ago now in 1962 in uh, Kenya. Um, as a, I believe we were described at the time as a purveyor of luxury safaris, which sounds sounds so delightful. Absolutely. Um, and, yeah, and set up by Jeffrey Kent, who is uh, an amazing visionary and still is still part of the business. Um, and uh, so we we sort of we really started out by taking people. Um, you know, in luxury to sort of places where you couldn't drink the water or speak the language. Um, And, uh, you know, mobile safaris were probably the first time that um, travellers could actually uh, explore um, Africa in comfort with ice in their drink and, you know, a comfortable bed to sleep on. Um, whereas pre- previously they might have gone out with a gun or some some other such horrible thing. But um, so from those very early beginnings, we then spread around the world. And um, the, the key uh, differentiator with Abercrombie & Kent is that almost everywhere you go, you travel with Abercrombie & Kent. So we have our own offices around the world. Um, we have over 55 offices now. Um, and, and so, you know, if you book um, an Abercrombie & Kent holiday to India, for example, in New Zealand, you're still being met by Abercrombie and Kent on the ground and not it's not being uh, passed on to a third party um, to manage your your holiday arrangements. So so that allows us to have a lot of control all the way down the uh, you know down the line for for our travel. 
Um, and from there, uh, we've, we're now on every single continent. We also have a, a hotel um, and cruise ship division. So that runs lodges in Botswana, South Africa, Tanzania, Kenya, Uganda. Um, we have four ships on the Nile. Um, we have um, uh, a boat on the Yangtze. We have one on the Irrawaddy in Myanmar. Um, so it's it's quite an extensive operation, some, you know, over two and a half thousand ANK staff around the world. Um, and, and we do everything from private travel to private jets um, to small group journeys to luxury expedition cruising uh, to villas. It's... Uh, um, it, it's it's an extensive portfolio of um, but all amazing adventures. I guess looking at things from a COVID lens, and you know, as we start to take our baby steps to uh, return to rediscovering the world, how critical do you think it is going to be for Abercrombie and Kent that you already have this massive global network of uh, specialised, proven professionals on the ground in far flung places? able to provide that peace of mind and reassurance and expertise to people? I, I think it's absolutely critical. Um, and, uh, you know, Mike, I'll say it's not, obviously, none of us have been through anything like the last, um, you know, last year. And mm. uh, none of us have been through a pandemic, most of us at least haven't been through a pandemic before. But um, in, in this business, we've had many crises. You know, we've had September 11, we've had the Arab Spring, um, and the Arab Spring is a great example because we had to airlift 800 passengers out of Egypt overnight, literally. And we were able to do that before the American and um, um, Australian governments were able to. So I think that really demonstrates the value of having people on the ground who can give you immediate information, tell you what's happening uh, faster than governments sometimes, um, and, and can also do things. So... I think it's it's really critical, and not just for our travellers. For me, you know, sitting many miles away from where a traveller is, I, I want to know that I'm absolutely across what's happening on the ground with that holiday. And the only way I can do that is um, by having our own people there. What about vaccines, Sujata? Do you think that is going to be absolutely pivotal to reliberating global travel? Uh, I think the answer to that is yes. Um, certainly, we've had many indications. Um, Alan Joyce at Qantas has said there's probably going to come a time where Qantas won't allow you on the flight if you haven't had a vaccine. So, And that's pretty dramatic. And I'm sure there'll be much controversy sparked by that particular comment. Um, but I, I think most travellers would consider that a, a vaccine would give them some degree um, of security. And I think it would uh, give them some degree of confidence um, in traveling. Um, so, yes, I, I do feel that a, a vaccine is going to be pivotal to all of this, unless unless there's some other magic cure comes up that none of us know about yet. Who knows? Do you see changes being made already to uh, the product Abercrombie and Kent will provide post-COVID? Are there going to be some fundamental uh, adapt? Uh, adaptations to to your product, do you think? Yes, I, I, I think there certainly are. Now, I mean, uh, you know, when I uh, look at our business here, we have sold domestic travel to Australians and Kiwis who wanted to explore their own area uh, for many years. So we, we didn't have to re-engineer our whole business post-COVID. Um, 
But despite that, and despite the fact that we had so much experience in in selling this part of the world, um, we really had to relook at everything we were selling and say, okay, we're now having, um, you know, people traveling around their own country, and are they necessarily going to travel the way that you know they might have done previously? So, for instance, we've done quite a lot of work on what is the sweet spot in terms of ideal time away. Um, you know, how do we uh, show Kiwis and Aussies that you can travel around your own country in luxury? And it's not necessarily something that you just, you know, pack the back of your uh, car and head off. There is actually a, a wonderful way to do this. And, uh, you know, and it, it, it sounds odd to say it, but there is so much that we don't know about our own countries. There is so much product. There are so many experiences um, and, and so I think this is, and, and I think a lot of us have always said, you know, I'll, I'll explore closer to home when I'm a bit older, when I can't travel anywhere else or, or you know, maybe just a long weekend or something. And, and I think that has changed now. Now you know, people are actually looking um, to explore their own destinations. Um, but I think also, and, and particularly for New Zealand, I would say that, you know, we felt that, um New Zealanders want to, you know, obviously they don't just want to go to the office places, you know, they want to go a little bit um, off the the so-called popular spots. Um, So, you know, whether it's Glenorchy in the South Island or they want to go to Stewart Island for its bird life or, um, you know, the central plateau for hiking, cycle routes, that sort of thing. Um, I I, I think we, we really needed to look at uh, what other places are there beyond the obvious, which you know an international visitor might want to see, um, but a, but a local really wants to do something different. And, and I think the other thing that we found is that um, Kiwis are quite adve- adventurous, um, and and so we've certainly increased the number of walking trips we have, or hiking trips, and um, you know um, e bicycles and. Um, so just, um, it's, I, I don't think there's a fundamental difference to how we do it. I mean, we've always specialized in handcrafted journeys, whether they're, they're private or whether they're in small groups or whether they're for family and friends. But I think we've had to tweak the product. Um, and, and there's probably a bigger emphasis on traveling with family and friends now. So we've, you know, we've, had, we've got more product that would accommodate that kind of, um, that kind of holiday. Thanks so much, Sujata. Great to talk. That was Sujata Raman from Abercrombie and Kent. Finally, on this edition of Kiwi Tripsters, let's take you to the golden glory of Abel Tasman National Park. Yes, at the very top of the South Island of New Zealand, where the golden summer weather lasts extra long. Actually, I must ask you, Chris, to check on that. Was the weather golden when you were there? The weather was very, very sunny, yeah. very, very golden. It was simply beautiful. Yeah, they're very proud of that. They reckon they have such consistently good weather. Anyway, um, you took a summer jaunt to Abel Tasman, which is our smallest National Park. Was it your first time there? It was my first time there. I was staying in Nelson with a friend and it was only just by chance we had a bit of a Google look and we thought, well, where's the best beach to hang out for the day? So I'm so glad I made this trip there because it was only, it wasn't on my list of things to do. It was just one of those things where I thought, well, let's head to the Abel Tasman National Park and see what it's all about. So we drove there, uh, we stayed, uh, we we drove to Māoriho, uh, which is 
you know, often classed as the main entrance points to uh, the Abel Tasman National Park. Yep. And we decided to, I mean, there are various ways to do this trip, if you like. You can either, you know, get your tramping boots on and start going through the track. We decided to deviate and go uh, south um, on foot. Yep. with all the beautiful beaches and I'll tell you what it is like out of a postcard it is beautiful some of the beaches almost look like they're privately owned because mm. there are not many people there but what was just so remarkable is seeing not many people around and I don't know whether that's to do with the international travel borders being closed but the Kiwis that we saw at some of these beautiful idyllic beaches they pitched their tent uh, there was only four or five tents overlooking the ocean it was just a lovely lovely experience and it's one of those places where you're walking from one beach and you think, shall I just walk further around the corner to see what's there? Or is it going to look the same? It looks completely different, but just as beautiful. It looks like something you may see on one of the Philippine brochures and those yes. beautiful islands there. It's, it is wonderful. But the thing is, Mike, I only scratched the surface mm -hmm. and I felt guilty for not actually doing a bit more research before I went because this was just a by chance Google you know, map search, what should we do today type of thing. But I am so glad I went because I feel like I've experienced a part of New Zealand that perhaps many people think about but don't go. And I will be back. Most people I know who have done, for example, the Abel Tasman Coastal Track have generally on their first time in the area, been like, say, in Nelson, mm. and have driven to Kaiteri Terry mm. and then have perhaps nudged up to where you went, Marahou, and have been absolutely blown away by just the sheer beauty, but also how big the area is and thought, I must come back and do this sometime. Yeah, well, I know that a lot of the brochures say it's New Zealand's smallest national park, and yeah. that's probably the case. Yeah. It doesn't feel like that, of course. No, not at it's all. It's about, what, 56 kilometres yeah. in its entirety. Yep. But what was nice to see is we felt guilty because, obviously, we were only spending uh, the best part of the day there. Yeah. But when we were starting the track, we saw so many trampers yep. coming back from their experiences, and they'd told us they'd stay there one night, two nights, three nights. There are lots of huts along the way. Yes. Just do a search on Google for some of the, you know, you can find things like the top five, the top 10 gems you'll find along the way. And thankfully, we probably discovered about five of the top 10 sort of attractions or gems just by walking on the beach as opposed Great. to going into the national park. But yeah. then on the way back, so we probably walked for about two hours on the beach. There are lots of places when you can then deviate back onto the track and walk back to the car park. And even that is just spectacular. It is beautiful. It is lush. It is rich. And it's probably, I would say, well, it is. It's world class. So is. I think it's really interesting that you liken it to uh, some of those beach scenes we see from the Philippines because uh, on the, I've been there twice. I haven't really done it justice. But from the samples I've done, it is like this rolling beauty pageant yes. of the most glorious beaches. That's a Just good way to describe it. one after another, isn't yeah, and it? That, but they're all so different. Yeah. They all give you a different sense. And if you're after that golden, sandy experience, it's right there for you. Yeah. It is just, it is, it is truly spectacular. But yeah. I know you talked to me about this uh, before I went, and uh, I said, I, I remember I gave you a quick call. I said, you did? Shivers, what are we, what are we, we're going to this place, what do we do? Oh, yeah. And I felt a bit overwhelmed and bombarded by you because you were saying there you can do, you can get water taxis <laughs> to Timbuktu and back. There are so many different ways you can explore yes. yeah. the coastline from taxis to boats, um, you know, uh, kite sails to by ear. And so this is the kind of place that I will be back to actually give it a decent go, but I feel like I've only just scratched the surface, but enough to make me go, 
I'm going to come back? Absolutely. Well, I'll tell you what, if you are considering perhaps like an Easter jaunt or a little jaunt around New Zealand, April, May, we've been checking on the Dock website and there's good availability at the Dock huts and campsites if you do want to knock off the Abel Tasman Coastal Track. As Chris referred to, it's about 60k from start to finish. Uh, Generally will take people three to five days and there are those water taxis that run. Um, And interestingly about those water taxis, even if you just want to do like one section of mm. that coastal track, maybe just one night of it, yeah. you can do that and and get a shuttle back to Kaiteri Terry or, you know, Mataha or Totranui, depending on where you're mm. starting. So there's lots of options. But also for me being a very amateur um, tramper yeah. or walker, it's quite a safe, easy track yeah. from the research I've done as well. But also you see plenty of people about it. It's not too isolated. It is popular and it's popular enough to see trampers there all year round. So yes. you'll never feel too isolated. You'll never feel unsafe. Mm. And it is appropriate for, you know, families. I actually did see a lot of families and young kids just walking, you know, perhaps say one, two, three kilometres inland from the main uh, entry point. So yep. it is appropriate for families as well. It's not a hard track. Did you notice many kayakers? Saw lots of kayakers. Mm. And I was very envious of them because I thought if I had my little wee cell phone camera with me, what spectacular stunning shots I could have got. So it's great for kayakers. You see so many different people about. But as I said, it wasn't overwhelmed by people. It wasn't spoilt by tourists. And that's probably a great thing for New Zealand at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. If you have never tried kayaking, but have wanted to, it is an absolutely ideal place to do it because there are so many kayak operators, you know, absolute pros who will will guide you, get you sorted, make you feel comfortable. Um, a lot of people will kayak independently, of course, once they know what they're doing. But um, it is a really good place uh, to get your kayak legs mm. as such. A, a really special part of New Zealand. I'm looking forward to take two of that, that's for sure. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us for our first edition of Kiwi Tripsters for 2021. It's so good to be with you, and thank you so much for, for being with us. Indeed. And uh, you are very welcome, of course, to like our Facebook page, and you will find the show notes for this edition on the Kiwi Tripsters website, kiwitripsters.co.nz. You will indeed. Uh, plus, we would love for you to rate our program and review Kiwi Tripsters on the podcast service that you are listening to this right now. And again, we hope to catch you next time in a couple of weeks. Take care. Thank you. And that's a wrap for this episode of Kiwi Tripsters. Liked what you listened to? Then join us for our next episode of Kiwi Tripsters, where we bring you more travel inspiration, giveaways, and insider knowledge with expert guests on the show. Connect with us on Facebook and Instagram, and visit us on kiwitripsters.co.nz. But most importantly, subscribe and comment on Apple Podcasts, and tell us what you think of our show. Till next time, safe travels. Safe travels.